But at the same time, digital transformation happened. Everything exploded, cloud exploded. And we could not have predicted just how incredibly transformative that was going to be. Like how much of that we were actually surfacing and how much that helped us to actually cause the company. We had this hypothesis that then played itself out, but I still in hindsight feel like that we didn't really capitalize fully on that. And that is the rise of the developer persona as you know major force in IT. I don't think that AI is going to destroy the world. I think we are much further away from this AGI thing. Welcome to The Craft. I'm Patrick Herman, investor at Picos Capital, and today super excited to have Christian Bitken joining the second episode of my podcast, The Craft, where I talk with pioneers of the developer infrastructure frontier. As a true dev pioneer himself, uh, he surely doesn't need a big introduction, so let me try to keep it as brief as possible. Christian is the co-founder CTO of Sumo Logic, one of the most influential global companies that transformed software infrastructure and observability over the last two decades. Christian not only built the observability layer, I guess, in the age of the cloud, but also created a new category with Sumo. And together with his co-founder Kuma, they grew Sumo from zero to Beyond 300 million of ARR took the firm to IPO. And on this journey, they also raised more than 300 million in venture capital funding from some of the world's biggest enterprise infrastructure investors, such as Sequoia Capital, Excel, Battery, and Greylock. Beyond that, Christian is not only a fantastic discussion partner for all things deaf and a brilliant technologist, but was also named the most successful active German founder in Silicon Valley in 2021. Without uh, further ado, and Christian is already laughing, I like it. Let's dive uh, right into it. Hi, Christian. Super nice to have you here. Welcome to The Craft. I've been looking forward to our joint session for a while. So thanks so much for joining. How do you feel today, I guess? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. I'm I'm, I'm here in Austin, Texas. Weather is good, very hot. Uh, and, you know, I'm looking outside and I've got a bunch of trees around me. So it's it's pretty good. Thanks for reminding me of the most successful still active kind of modifier I, I had a, i had a pretty good laugh when i when i when when that came out it looks like you know i still have to work versus the actually successful people are not active anymore but yeah that was pretty funny anyways yeah it was was very cool to have that like written up action christian uh you know i could start with a lot of things i guess i would like to kick it off uh, and you know start today's episode i guess with a short anecdote from your kind of impressive two decade long even journey as a developer first uh, entrepreneur which and the story and, and anecdote I think perfectly describes your own personal style of building and scaling companies because uh, from what you've told me and I think also to the listeners out there I wanted to ask you is it true that after you know building scaling sumo logic putting all the work in uh, you know together with your partner Kuma in the end when the day came when you know you actually it was IPO day IPO listing day uh, you didn't show up in person to this very special day but rather sent your dog uh, from what you've told me as your <laughs> yeah kind of re representative instead. And I guess the question for me uh, and also for all the people out there, um, what's the rationale? Like you put in all the work and whatnot and other people would go in and celebrate with, with the team and so on. What happened? Please tell us more. Yeah, I, I definitely also celebrated. So it was a bit of it was a circumstantial thing. But basically, what happened was this was during COVID, right? And we did the actual IPOs. Like the thing is, when you do IPO and usually you go to Times Square, right? And in our case, it was NASDAQ. And you would go into the NASDAQ building and there's this like ritual pushing of the button yeah. and they're all like, you know, broadcast that on CNBC, et cetera. And, you know, this is sort of a, a sort of classic sort of rite of passage for a company. And, you know, you, people clap and it's actually, uh, it's, I think it's a very cool experience because, 
you know, the people that are there, you know, that represent all the hard work that like it took to get there. And uh, it was just the case that, um, so first of all, the, the actual celebration, because it was COVID, nobody could travel. Uh, New York had extra restrictions. So we went back and forth. NASDAQ decided to basically send like a pretty professional camera team. Like, like they had a camera arm and everything, you know, to the Sumo Logic parking lot in Redwood City. And then that's where the actual, you know, like pushing off the button happened and then they transmitted it and, and broadcasted from there. So so a bunch of folks were invited and obviously I would go there, but it, it just so happens that I was actually in Germany at the time because uh, when my dad had surgery, I got his second hip replaced. And he's doing fine, all of that, right? But like, it's a pretty long process and he's in the in hospital and then, you know, he's away at like some you know, rehab thing and and, uh, you know, I, I felt it was the right thing for me to do was to sort of hang out with my mom during that time and, you know, support her, like, you know, and like all of that type of stuff. And and so and that was like, you know, completely, you know, outside of, of, of any sort of IPO schedule. And, and I was just committed to doing that. Right. And uh, and I, I still think it was the right thing to do. And and again, the whole story of the IPO going IPO in 2020 during COVID, like this all happened, you know, very quickly. We were originally meant to go in, you know, early 2020, then COVID happened, then the whole IPO pipeline stalled, right? But then there was this kind of weird rebound where, you know, especially SaaS type stuff, you know, started to continue to grow with people working more from home. There was a bunch of hype again, right? And, you know, Wall Street decided to basically, you know, push a bunch of companies public and, and like we gladly were part of that stream, you know, along with other folks like JFrog and Snowflake and what have you. So, but I was in Germany, right? And and so instead of me, my wife actually went to the celebration and, you know, she took our dog and, you know, this particular dog is actually the namesake of the company. You know, his name is Sumo and was Sumo before there was a Sumo logic, right? And he's a He's a stray rescue that we've had since 2009. We started, you know, uh, uh, Sumologic in in 2010. And, you know, it, it just so happened that, you know, we kind of just ended up on that name Sumologic because, you know, the name Sumo was at the top of my head when we were doing like name brainstorming and, you know, you know Kumar liked it. And so it, it kind of stuck, right? But behind all of that is a little... Uh, is a little like eight pound, like little stray dog, you know, uh, a mutt that actually is still alive. Uh, he's probably pushing 15 years now, but like he's still here. He's downstairs running around barking and being hungry. So yeah, that's that story. Thanks so much for sharing. So he's still still active. You know, you're also, you know, one of the most successful active entrepreneurs and the dog is Apparently. also active. Really, <laughs> really like it. After taking the tough decision to step back from the day-to-day -day role at Sumo earlier this year. So I guess... It's a good timing to to start on the reflection journey of uh, of you know the the things that had. How do you feel after such a incredible journey with Sumo over over all those years? Uh, how do you spend your time these days? And maybe also to put it a little bit more provocative, uh, what keeps a Christian Bitcoin motivated and energized for for the path ahead? Yeah. So look, I mean, I'm I'm I feel just incredibly blessed to have been able to be part of you know the Sumo story and you know to be you know at the at the very beginning of it and you know to kick it off. You know, I I. I don't live my life according to some master plan, right? Uh, that mm -hmm. has, you know, basically just, just being there with an open mind and, you know, taking opportunities when they come has really worked out pretty well for me. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't necessarily always a straight path, but, you know, it, it and eventually I landed me, you know, in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, as, as a young programmer and actually 10 years older than most of the other young programmers because of, you know, that path that wasn't so straight. But anyways, I was there, right? And I just love building shit. And, you know, I, my hands are good at typing if at anything, but like, I, you know, I'm not a carpenter type guy, right? So I'm, I'm building virtual stuff, but it's still building. And, and it's a creative sort of part of me that, that needs an outlet, right? And, and like, I, I got just swept up in, you know, in this, in this startup, uh, early employee there as a, as, as a young, 
developer called Arcsight that was ended up being a category sort of creating a, a you know public company after like you know basically it's like nine year run right and they, they were doing security information event management and it's just a leading company in that space or so space that's still a huge market today right and um, I was there you know I worked hard you know probably also to some degree smart I guess I you know I kind of got promoted and blah 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 all that stuff right I started running teams it was super cool it was such a great experience um, I, I, I still remember the first time I walked in there actually in interviewing with these folks and you know this was the first time i had like a sort of interview with a real like proper silicon valley you know team and you know founder cto and then all that and they just blew me away they were so fucking smart right it was just a totally different level um you know i had been sort of bouncing around you know doing startups you know sort of like random stuff in the late like you know bubble days you know uh, also be very cool and very smart people and all of that and you know some germans you know you know you know some florida you know actually for some reason florida but like you know the the sort of local, like, I don't know, it was just a totally different level. It really felt that you were like in the center of the world, of that particular world. And, and so super blessed that that happened. And then, you know, super blessed that I, you know, managed to kind of just, I guess, learn and, you know, also project sort of an ability, you know, to to sort of, you know, build stuff, learn stuff and, and evolve, right? And then, you know, also super blessed that like, you know, at around that time, I was I was there experiencing the sort of wave of disruption that that like, you know, went through niche by niche of of enterprise software right because what we were building was enterprise software and like we built it the old school way which was like you build it you put it in a city you ship it to the customer and then you ship right. it on right because they have to install it they have to like source the machines and the databases and blah 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 and and it was a beautiful product you know if you got it to run but like most most people like kind of got stuck installing upgrading blah 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 all this stuff right and and so for us, it felt like it's super inefficient, right? Um, and, you know, and like, you know, how do you like debug by telemetry? So <laughs> by, not by tele, okay, sorry, that was the Freudian slip. How do you, how do you debug by telepathy, right? You know, how do you debug a customer set? Oh, it's very hard, right? But ultimately you have to do it. And so, you know, we felt that like this, you know, SaaS was already a thing, you know, coming through, you know, Salesforce versus Siebel, you know, we, we saw uh, what ServiceNow started doing to remedy a company that we also knew and, and. And obviously, we also sort of, from more personal use, saw like just how much all went through like websites and stuff, right? That we hosted somewhere. And, and at the same time, we discovered this cloud thing, right? Which was AWS at the time, basically. And, you know, we put one on one together and said, hey, you know, our niche of enterprise software is going to be disrupted by ASAS, right? And with cloud or AWS in particular, then basically providing the data center as an API, we as developer types, can now basically apply what we know, which is like hacking into a bunch of APIs, right? And then just piling stuff on top of each other until it works, uh, making a bunch of calls and uh, and actually build a SaaS and even like potentially a scalable one versus, you know, having to first find a lot of people that know all the networking, racking, stacking stuff and so forth. And so the incredible enabler and, you know, just basically being there and, you know, being like at the timing just matters, right? And probably being there in our niche, you know, maybe because we've been there seeing this like two or three years before anybody else is what, yeah, well, we did see it, you know, a good timing. And then, you know, we ended up uh, in, you know, 2009 to 2010, you know, finding finding investor that actually sort of, you know, had kind of put one and one together in his own head also. And like had already sort of this vision of predicting in his own head this future in this particular category that he knew really well that there was a shame at Greylock, right? And you know, when we met, it was just like an incredible kind of we we just we just that was a great match, right? And that then enabled us to kind of put the company together in, you know, in twenty ten and we were off to the races, building first of all, a scalable lock management system that was, you know, post like a SaaS cloud-based lock management system. 
And that at the time was still something that most people would look at you and basically say, you're like, you're, you're building essentially a SaaS for sort of the gnarliest kind of big data, right? That has, you know, potentially, you know, the largest sort of, you know, volume issues and all that. That's fucking nuts. You know, that's never going to work. You know, you're going to have, you know, margin stacking issues and this and that. And, you know, people are not going to send the data in the cloud. And, you know, we had to figure out a whole bunch of stuff, right? But we were convinced that we could build a system that had a much better experience for the users. I mean, forget the UI, you know, that too, but like also just like they could just go and use it, right? And they didn't have to first install all of these heaps of stuff and, you know, cluster shit and all that, right? They could just go and use it. And, and, um, and also because of, you know, from the very beginning, we didn't just do, I mean, we were really like the sort of Salesforce, many of disciples. I mean, for us, cloud meant multi-tenancy, right? We were like, this wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to like, like spin up a thing and then for the next customer I'm gonna spin up another thing. No, we're gonna spin up a shitload of things and we multiplex customers on top of it, right? That we also felt was a huge economic advantage, efficiency advantage. We could basically get away with on average less resources, you know, to service customers better than we would have, you know, based on, you know, provisioning and provisioning for the peak kind of kind of, you know, dynamics and just basic math. We could actually do it cheaper than, you know, pretty much anybody else by leveraging multi-tenancy. Uh, and that actually did work out that way. It was so obviously not without hurdles. And, you know, we did a lot of work, you know, convincing people that it's safe to send us the data and like a bunch of pioneer stuff that I feel like and embracing regulations and getting audited and, and not saying, oh, that's stupid, you know, it's security, good theater. It's not. Auditing is, is important. You know, it, it creates pressure on you to do the stuff that you say the right way. And, you know, it builds trust with customers. So I'm a big fan, right? And then, you know, that like basically set us up for, for solving both classic application monitoring as well as the, the same security use cases that Arcset was also working on. And at the same time, digital transformation happened. Everything exploded, cloud exploded. And like we could not have predicted. I mean, we predicted it was going to be cool, but we couldn't have predicted just how incredibly transformative that was going to be. Like, how much of that we were actually surfacing and how much that helped us to actually cause the company. I mean, I, I wanted also to ask you, you know, on the biggest assumptions you had when you started Sumo in the very early days, right? On, you know, the market dynamics and kind of just the evolution of the market. So looking backwards, like 13, 14 years later, I guess, what were the biggest, like top two, three assumptions, you know, next to the, I guess, accessibility argument, right? That you just make yeah. easier to use such a service, which you had back then and how did they play out? I'm thinking just fundamentals, right? In the inevitability of SaaS, right? For, for every kind of software in the enterprise. The fact that, you know, cloud, as I already said, was the key to unlocking building of more SaaS, right? You know, it's not just, you know, cloud for, you know, the transformation from enterprise IT and all of that. That's all super important. But like this combination of, you know, it's got to be SaaS and cloud makes it so much easier for us than anybody else to build SaaS, right? The whole API is a, like for the data center thing. So we had that assumption and I think that turned out true, right? And then obviously the inevitability of SaaS as well. And then, um, you know, we had a, we had this hypothesis that then played itself out, but I, I, I'm still in hindsight feel like that we didn't really capitalize fully on that. And that that's a whole story we could talk about for days is, it's like the rise of the developer persona as, you know, ma major force in IT, right? Or, or basically... You know, the like, yeah, developers replacing. I, I don't know how you want to say it, right? But, you know, Redmond guys wrote the book on it, you know, the, the Kingmaker thing. And, you know, we always felt, you know, to a pretty strong degree, you know, that we would increasingly move away, especially with the accessibility of cloud and cloud being an API, increasing kind of enablement of people that know how to program, which is how I define a developer, right? doesn't have to be Stanford freaking distributed systems PhD necessarily. That is, you're also a developer, 
But like, if you know how to sling a bunch of Python to sort of make computer do shit, right? You're a developer, right? You're a programmer in my mind, right? If you are like a security guy that knows how to automate, you know, remediations or that knows how to sort of, you know, like download a bunch of shit from the internet and create threat intelligence, you know, that you are a programmer, right? You are a developer in my mind, right? And so you are a person that is being productive, right? And, you know, cloud, you know, just sort of supercharge the productivity of those folks. And at the same time, also sort of, you know, pretty much kill the IT jobs, you know, the classic IT jobs on some level. Like, you know, so there's always pros and cons, right? But yeah, I think that's another one. Um, you know, basically make a, the, the sort of focus on people that can make shit, right? Versus versus sort of the dominance prior of like admin and like administrative and bureaucracy. It's like, oh, my bastard operator from hell, you know, he finally provisioned me a VM in the fucking cluster. But like he only gave me one gigabyte and I can't do anything with that. And now I have to go back to my VP engineering again. And la 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 la. And then they have to meet in East Africa and talk to the CIO. La, la, la. Who the fuck needs this? Right. And and this is all played out like that. I mean, a couple of big giants also, you know, took this movement, right? And took this assumptions like a sneak for the security side, a Terraform on the infrastructure, infrastructure and, you know, configuration side. So everything shifted left to the developers. I think something which is obviously very closely tied to the shift to cloud. If you think about, you know, the different waves a little bit after it, uh, and it's still going on, right? For very different pieces of the, the dev stack, um, and the technology stack, I guess. Maybe one, uh, to be a little more challenging, I guess, uh, for you being, you know, the, the home turf kind of like industry veteran on the observability piece. When I prepared for the, the episode today, we, came across this, you know, we call it like observability market paradox, because on the one hand, you have all the big analysts, all the big reports stating, all right, observability is between two to four billion dollars in terms of the market size uh, globally as of today. And it, it will obviously grow. But on the flip side, you have companies such as a Sumo Logic with, you know, which IPO'd for three billion. You have a Datadog, which is valued at a couple of tens of billion even. Oh, yeah. And a new Relic, oh. which just recent, recently also got uh, taken private for 6.5 billion US dollars. How can you explain that? Because in the end, it doesn't go together, right? There needs to be something else. Like, why is a Datadog valued at the price it is today? Why is a new Relic valued at such a price? Or who's who's wrong on both ends, I guess? I'm not sure anybody's necessarily wrong, right? I think it's a sort of, a, it's maybe a matter of sort of perspective and what you want to focus on. I think these companies all do more than just observability, right? So the question is, uh, how do you actually sum it up, right? And, you know, so from my own experience, um, usually there's marketizing that happens bottom up and top down, you know, when a company goes public, you work with the, you know, the banks and la la la. And, you know, yes, these exercises can, like, they can probably be more, I mean, you know, that the, the dynamics are such that you want to probably, you know, claim the biggest market you can like reasonably figure out how to prove, you know, on some level, right? So let's, let's, let's keep that in mind. But I don't think those numbers are necessarily shit, right? So I, I think they do sort of indicate, you know, the, the opportunity. And, you know, if you look at, I don't know, for example, Datadog, I think in whenever that was 2017, 2018 or so, when they put their S1 out, I mean, you know, they, they were talking about a $35 billion market. I think Splunk was talking right. about like in, in the investor presentations around that time and later 50. I think I remember the number 40 from our own, like, you know, endeavors and stuff like that. So, you know, you're looking at like a much bigger number there. So who's right? I don't know. So once you're a public company, right, then, you know, there's all the metrics out there. And then people will basically, you know, they look at, fundamentally, they look at your free cash flow, right? And how that trends. And then they look at, they look at your growth rate, right? Like, you know, not your growth, but your rate of growth actually right and so um and then that gets benchmarked right uh, against other companies in you know potentially other spaces right and you know if you have you know like let's say you know top five metrics on, on fcf and, and and you know quarter over quarter crow right then yeah i mean 
median ever median valuation might be five five x right on whatever these the underlying their revenue like you know the next twelve months are but like company like Datadog which is top five right like you can put Snowflake there and I don't know who else right but yep. like I would have to look it up yeah they get a fifteen x on that right and that turns them into a thirty plus billion dollar play right because the idea is that this is just going to just continue to just grow at such a high rate right that it's that it's speculatively worth evaluating them at that level right or valuing them at that level and you know that is still today i think almost half of what it used to be in, in 2020 yeah. and so you yeah. have you have a market size that is anywhere like on a, on on a, on a yearly basis you know between you know between observability and security and whatnot like you you know like sim right or, and maybe locks is a separate one you have to sort of look at how the analysts really break it down so you can you count it up you're probably gonna end up somewhere between five and ten conservatively right but per year right you know you got companies that can capture like 50 percent of that and you value them because you know you're looking you know five ten years out you're valuing them at very high multiples right and yeah that puts like the make guys pretty fucking rich and you know those guys that are running at that level of execution like datadoc for example beautiful product incredible execution right they're just very very good at what they're doing and you know and that was not easy to get there and my sense is they deserve it right no Glad, glad to hear. I think obviously the question pops up, like, how does it relate to, you know, everything which is now coming in with, you know, the big private equity firms taking over some of, you know, the large companies and all of them obviously have the agenda of, you know, creating efficiencies and, you know, potentially also consolidating some of the observability market. So how do you view the path ahead, I guess, for the industry? Do you think, you know, there's still so much growth ahead that you also will have new companies spinning up? Or do you think it's now at a state where it's very mature as a market segment will be consolidated, will be, you know, efficiencies will be uh, created? I think all the signals are there that is that we are in a consolidation phase, as you already said, right? I think the current crop of leading companies, uh, this is never perfect. You have to average it a little bit, but like was it's basically sort of 10 to 15 years old. You, you can argue about Dynatrace. Uh, Dynatrace yeah. is like, you know, it's like actually also super impressive, actually. But like, you know, with the sort of post-computerware Ruxit route, I mean, they're pretty much also 10 to 15 years old now. But like, um, you know, Sumo, 13 years old, Dynadox, 13 years old, you know, Splunk Alive and Well still, you know, they are like a little older than that. Yeah, so there's been a bunch of stuff. And, you know, you have some some real runaways. I mean, both Dynatrace and, you know, Dynadox, of course, we already mentioned. And, you know, Splunk's still really strong, you know, big, big, big companies, right? Is it the new big four? I don't know how to count it. I don't know. But like, I think it always goes in cycles, right? And and like, I think it feels like we might be sort of at a consolidation cycle now, right? And I think that's why you see, you know, for the for the companies where, you know, this sort of execution like lags a little bit behind those guys that we just mentioned. And, you know, execution has been lagging on Sumo side and execution has been lagging on Euralic side on some level, right? Compared to what other companies can do, you know, that depresses the valuations and then, you know, private equity thinks, you know, this is a very useful market. It's a real market, right? And and like we, we can talk about that a little bit more. I mean, there's like observability and security or reliability and security, as I like to say, it. it's a dirty word, right? But it's almost like a tax, right? And digital transformation, you know, you build applications, you put them in front of your customers, like reliability and security are, are you know, major, major properties that you need to manage and maintain because otherwise... Your, your, you know, your users are just going to not come back, right? So then, you know, there, there's numbers that I've seen that are as far, that they go as high as, like, you know, in, you know, predicting, you know, spend for every, you know, basically 40 cents for each dollar that you spend on the application, like, at, at itself, you know, goes to reliability and security, yeah. right? Like, those are numbers that I've, you know, seen, like, I don't know, but 
you know, maybe it's not guided high. I've seen thirty. I have. I've seen thirty percent or thirty cents. Right. So, man, I mean, everybody needs this. Right. It has real value. Uh, it's also a real problem, and you know that's why private equity is interested. Right. Because they they can they can get really good assets for for a good price, and you know they can probably fix some of the execution issues. That's the play. Right. And they'll be right back in there. Right. And so the thing right now is the question, I guess, is what's next. Right. You know, is somebody like Datadog or Dynatrace still going to matter in ten years? So. I don't really know how to answer that question at face value. I think the only thing that I can think of is try to look at what enabled the rise of companies like that in the yes. past, right? Yeah. And and it's usually some sort of tectonic shift that's happening, right? Some sort of larger disruption. You know, you've seen it with, you know, in the 90s with the internet becoming a thing. And then you saw it again, like, you know, somewhere between 2005 and 2010, whenever you want to, you know, like stick the needle there, like when when the cloud really started, you know, going off and, and like really completely changing the way people were building software, deploying software. You know, the whole idea that you can even access like back to the internet, right? You know, you can even access software over a public network, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so those... Those macro shifts create opportunity for basically doing things that on some level, from a perspective of outcomes, have been like the outcome desired, reliability, security, have been have been done before, right? But now the overall thing is being done differently. So, you know, these types of, you know, supporting tools needs to adapt, need to adapt, and you know, that's how you get innovation. Right. And and then guys come in and just do it better and, and differently, and specifically differently. Right. And maybe more efficiently and whatnot. And, you know, more tailored towards the way that like, you know, especially in this in that sort of like space that we are in, you know, as IT changes, you know, those tools change. That's how the that, so the question that becomes what's next, right? For security and reliability, observability, whatever you want to say, right? It's like what on the macro level is going to change, right? Um, what's the sort of next tectonic shift that's happening? Part of me thinks that I don't really know if the way that we're going to build and deploy apps is going to be as significantly different in mm-hmm. 10 years than it is now compared to 10 years ago or 15 years ago. You know what I mean? As in like, that's, that's because the IT and kind of infrastructure will always be the same because you will always need to build on bare metals, right? Which are obviously in the cloud and whatnot. Uh, so there you don't have this tectonic shift anymore or why? why, why yeah. Is yeah. So look, I mean, if you look at how we used to build, like, you know, a lot of people, even like even today, they, they still build software and ship it on a, on a, on a city. Compared to that versus SaaS is completely different. And then, you know, some of the evolution with the, you know, cloud has gone through, you know, outsourcing the database, mm-hmm. outsourcing some of this stuff, right? And, and, you know, there's all, I mean, cloud was just an idea and then a lot of incremental execution on top of that, making a lot of things even simpler, right? But the basic idea was, you know, there's an API that you call and it spins up a machine for you. And then all the stuff you need around that. And, and I don't know what that's going to, like, and that's a dramatic shift from how it was done before. Like, it's very different from a CD, right? So, and, and I don't know, like, right now, I don't have a hypothesis as to what a dramatic shift like that, you know, how that would look like in 10 years from now. And, you know, like we're building, we're building stuff with, you know, it's fairly efficiently you know, in the cloud and you can do serverless if you want, but it's still cold, blah, 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 right? Yes. You know, web front end is kind of, you know, okay, so we've seen a lot of innovation there, but basically everybody does, you know, React now, la, la, la. I mean, there's a lot of consolidation on that as well. So right now I'm not seeing anything that would make me think that that software development is going to be as upended in like over the next 10 years as it is, as it was in the last 10 to 15. I mean, it's, it's super interesting, right? Because in yeah. the end, lots of people from the industry, they obviously claim and it's the elephant in the room that now, you know, it's a shift to AI for all of customers course. out there, right? Which is the next one after, you know, everyone shifted to the cloud from on-prem to the cloud and now from cloud to, you know, AI powered applications or AI rooted applications even. 
But in the end, those just give a different access layer, right? So more people can build applications in an easier fashion way because then you can use natural language to spin up even infrastructure, right? They don't even need to write the code to spin up the API at AWS. So how do you see this shift, I guess? Do you see it even yeah. in the shift yeah. for enterprise infrastructure or, you know, the developer ecosystem? So if you were to look around as to what potential tectonic shifts you might be able to detect, right? Like that would yeah. be one. And I find that super yeah. interesting, right? And like I've been talking to follow that like now for a while and i'm having a hard time convincing myself at this point that this is going to be a sure shot of really changing productivity i will say on the on the plus side i was very skeptical about oh github has this copilot thing i was like oh, that's, yeah. that's not gonna work right and then i tried it and i was like what the fuck it's actually really it's it's a, it's a really really helpful tool right it doesn't really write the code for you you still have to like you still have to think right but it, it can absolutely make you more efficient. So that that's very cool, right? And and those are the things. And 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 yeah, you know, now you have you know you have the open source code models, code llama, blah blah blah, and all that. And you know, there's going to be more innovation on that. Now everybody's trying to put like that idea, that copilot idea, into their product. And somehow, basically, chat with your app. And I I've played with so much, and I've had some ideas myself. I can't quite convince myself. It's extremely fascinating, and I understand that people are excited about it. I mean, this, this LLM thing is, is pretty fucking fascinating, right? But, you know, maybe I'm old, and, you know, maybe I, 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 I'm not a guy that's more pessimistic or whatnot. I, I think it's very interesting, but I don't see it as clearly yet uh, as, as how it would be that transformative uh, yeah, in reality. Um, but again, you know, hindsight, and Somebody like me could have said the same thing 15 years ago about cloud. I, I just happen to not be that guy. But like, yeah, right now, I don't think that AI is going to destroy the world. I think we are much further away from this HAI thing than, than anything. And that, that's just one guy's opinion and like maybe not even that informed. But like I'll just say that's totally subjective, right? But like, you know, playing with LLMs now for the last, you know, uh, almost nine months or what have you, right? Like, you know, it like the thing is that it looks like it's going to be really cool and then it just stops there, right? And it's very hard to reproduce things. It's super probabilistic. And yeah, so I think there's going to be opportunity to infuse AI into a lot of products. I think that will actually favor incumbents, right? Because you need data to train AI and the incumbents have the AI, right? There yeah. will be companies, uh, but there will be companies that will help with that, right? Both on, you know, you know, how to even make and run models and all of that. And that's totally cool, right? And then there's also going to be companies that'll support sort of production deployment use cases and, you know, monitoring of that. And you already see that Langsmith and stuff, right? So is that going to, like, is Langsmith, you know, going to be the next data dog? Right now, I feel like those things could end up more like with where the sort of serverless guys as Pagon and so forth ended up, where, you know, totally cool, right? Basically, you know, it turns out to be a sort of a, a, a version of tracing, which is actually Langsmith too, right? But so... And that became a totally cool thing to do. And there was one or two companies that got acquired for very nice outcomes, right? By, by sort of incumbent players. So I, I think there's still always like a chance to build some. Or EBP, like look at the EBPF thing, right? you know, Pixie, Flowmill, et cetera. Like, you know, they actually know the Flowmill guys and the super smart guys, right? But got acquired by Splunk. And, you know, uh, nothing wrong with that, right? You know, taking something from a paper, you know, to customers and then ultimately getting a really nice valuation. But it is not the next Splunk, right? It is not the next state at all. Lots to entangle. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, I look, fully agree. I mean, like everyone is just like, it's so early in this new shift, if in, in case it's a shift, right? Um, that people are still wrapping their heads around. I think what we've seen working the best, just like playing with everything you find out there and getting your head around, like, where does it actually create value? In the end, core infrastructure will always be the same for now. 
you know, however you want to build your application, you need the batteries included underneath and those are the same and won't be shifted so quickly. I think just it gives access to, you know, using them better and more efficiently. And obviously on the application enterprise, like application layer side, there's also much, much more um, value you can capture, I guess. Uh, we covered lots of ground. I think, you know, we could go on forever. Uh, all the good discussions need to, to come to an end, I guess. Before I let you run, wanted to express, uh, again, obviously my gratitude. Uh, having you on the episode, it's been fantastic. Also, you know, sharing so openly, so transparently what you've learned, uh, what you want to do next, what's the, the path I had, I guess, for the industry you kind of built or shaped uh, together with a couple of other very smart guys. And as always here on the on the podcast, The Craft Ride, let's close it up with the, the final questions, which is the tradition here uh, on, on The Craft. So Christian, what, what's the definition of craft in software development for you? And what's the craft you are most proud of creating during yeah. the last yeah. decades at Sumo and ArcSight? Yeah. Yeah. I actually knew that you were going to ask this. So I was like wondering how I'm going to address that because <laughs> it, it wasn't sort of sort of super obvious for me, kind of just like ad-libbing, right? And and so as I sometimes do, I, I'm, I'm that annoying guy that basically, you know, goes to, goes to Google and like tries to define the term actually, right? Yeah. And so I'm yeah. going to just run with that, right? So I, I, I found two definitions, right? Like one basically says graph means the skill in planning, making or executing, right? And so the, the one thing, you know, the one thing that comes to mind there that like, and I think you've probably heard this, you know, and, and like folks have heard this before, but um, it is it is just, it played itself out for me so many times. It's, it's ultimately, this part about execution is just so incredibly important. And you land in a place, like it really is, you know, like if you have an okay idea executed mm -hmm. insanely well, you know, beats a great idea, executed not so well, right? And I think if you are looking at, you know, yeah, I, it's always, you always feel like the idea needs to be absolutely fantastically great, right? And like, but like sometimes, you know, you can have the greatest idea and like it's, uh, uh, you know, you still have to actually make it happen. Like when you do not have an idea, coming up with an idea feels incredibly hard, right? But from my experience, you know, everything after is way harder. You know, so from that, I feel like, I don't know if this is a good answer, but like, you know, that the whole mm -hmm. point about it is like, you know, for like maybe also sort of mapping back to sort of entrepreneurship is like not necessarily not like at some point, just take an idea, right? You know, uh, don't, don't, at, at some point, just go, go, right? And, and don't, don't, don't fret it too much. I mean, you still need to, like, obviously, the idea still has to be reasonable, right? Stupid ideas are going to go anywhere, but, uh, but yeah, so. So that's a part about, you know, when it comes to craft, right? It's about the execution. And I, I could map that back to sort of software engineering execution and planning and managing. Um, and I'll do that in the next part. So, so skill and like the other definition I found was also really interesting. Basically it says skill and experience, especially in relation to making objects, blah, 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 right? And, and so what that definition adds to craft is not just skill, but also experience, right? And I'm now that guy, I just turned 50, I just happen to have a bunch of experience, <laughs> uh, I think, right? Like, it's hard to argue I don't, you know? <laughs> well, I learned from it, we will see. <laughs> um, and so, so I was thinking, what, what, you know, what, what did, you know, experience teach me? And this might be the sort of, I'm, I'm going to do a quick one on that, like, because I know we're like running, running on time, but like, you can talk about software engineering all day. And, you know, I think a lot of people are like, my experience tells me that a lot of people are thinking about it as being, you know, about coding and, and technology. It's just not, you know, it's about humans. Right. And, and like, you know, like technology can be very hard and very gnarly and, and, and maths and like, you don't understand it and whatnot. Right. But try to understand humans. Man. I mean, you know, you know, try to align them, try to make them, 
you know, try to get them to make something happen. I think, you know, I think the real craft in software engineering lies in, you know, figuring out, you know, how, how am I going to say that? Like, it, it might sound a little bit kind of obvious, but like, let me, let, let me, let me try to phrase it. It's the, you know, it's to sort of envision the outcome, line people up and make that outcome happen. Right. And it, especially with, with, in, in, so like this applies to the entire company. Right. But it also sort of like you talk about strategy and blah, blah, blah. Right. And nobody can ever agree. But like, okay, let's just say you have a strategy. And you have sort of a, a, a sort of wireframe in your head as to what the outcome is supposed to be in terms of the product and what it's supposed to do for users. Whether it's zero to one or one to 10 or whatever the next version is that you need to build, right? You are working with an incredibly smart set of very creative people. You know, then there are programmers, you know, developers, you know, they know how to run and like, scale shit. You know, you have, you know, like technical product managers, you have UX people, you know, all of these, these people are not there to receive, uh, you know, uh, orders, right? They are like, they want to sort of bring themselves into the whole process, right? And to sort of like, you know, tune it in such a way that ultimately, you know, all the horses can you know, kind of, you know, go out and, you know, eat the grass and then, he, but eventually also go back to the stable, uh, you know, and, and like, you know, don't get fucking killed by a blizzard because they forget that, you know what I mean? It's like, like there's a sort of a, there's a sort of a, the, the human system around that is just, it's just incredibly hard. Right. And I, I think you can only aspire to be good at that. Right. But, but, you know, you have to aspire to be good at it. And, and that I think is. That has nothing to do with management. That has nothing to do with how good a coder you are. That is really just sort of understanding the nature of, you know, of the humans that you need to work with and, you know, how to like coalesce them around and align them around a goal, like helping them get along, listening to them if they feel like you're off path, being open to kind of adjust all of that. So it's a super dynamic thing. Does that make sense? Makes a ton of sense. And I guess for, for you, it played out nicely, right? So you understood the humans, uh, you gathered them around to kind of solve the goal, right? Build this, you know, observability layer on this tectonic shift, as you called it out. So thanks so much, Christian. It was a true pleasure having you. Thanks for having me.